Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Safamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to this podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return for more episodes and new content as we bring it forward. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative enlightening, and most importantly, insightful. So before we get to the main event, if you are someone who loves the podcast and all the content that we share on our Day Talk platform, please make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get future notifications on uh, content that's coming up in the coming weeks. Uh, also, uh, we've been getting a lot of inquiries about how they can monetarily contribute to the growth of this platform uh so if you're someone that is on cash app for instance you can give a donation uh with the handle money sign id talk for ed or if you're on venmo our handle will be at kwame sm that's k-w-a-m-e-s-m and we welcome all donations big and small And we do not take them for granted because that's what allows us to bring on these phenomenal guests who are taking the time to share their expertise, their knowledge, and all they know about education. So we appreciate you for helping us contribute to that growth. Thank you so much. All right, y'all. So, you know, we're deep into this podcast run. Um, This is what? Episode 112 can't believe we're saying 112 but we've had 112 of these and it just seems like it just gets better and better with each guest that comes on to this stage uh so today's topic is really going to be focused on latinx culture in america uh as y'all know i'm in the process of writing a book And one of the goals for this book is to really focus on each of the different main historically marginalized groups in our country within the context of education. So we hear so much about the black community. We hear so much about the indigenous community. We hear so much about the Asian Pacific Islander community here in America. Uh, Also about the LGBTQ plus community and, and other historically marginalized communities. But for whatever reason, we don't really hear a lot about the Latinx community in America and even beyond and how they're impacted by 
a lot of the injustices that are happening in our education system. So to help us unpack some of these deeply rooted issues, I have for today's guest a person who does a lot of advocacy work, uh, primarily in higher ed as it pertains to providing opportunities for, for Latinas and and other folks within the Latinx community so they can have opportunities to uh, progress in society, not just in academia, but in other industries as well. And she is someone who is uh, very outspoken, unapologetic about who she is. And I just love everything that she is about. And I'm just honored to have her come on uh, this podcast, talk with us about what she does in that advocacy. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's bring on uh, Mrs. Christina Rodriguez to the podcast to talk with us about Latinas with Masters, her company, and, and everything that she's doing right now. So let's get this thing started. Hey, hey. What up, what up? What's going on? How you feeling, Christina? Chilling like a villain. Chilling like the, <laughs> the spoken and unapologetic Latina that I am. <laughs> yes, yes. Love it, love it. And um, and we'll talk about this as we get deeper into the conversation, but I know that you're in the middle of your doctoral journey, so it's important for me to check on the mental health of those who are who's take who are taking on this rigorous path in education. So how are you feeling? Ooh, you know, I that is something that I am learning to do myself is to ask people how are they doing. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, you know, I'm doing better to be honest with you um this doc talk uh any education journey but specifically the doctoral journey is very lonely at times or may feel like lonely at times so um yeah i'm doing better i'm doing things with intention and i gotta make sure that i am mentally prepared you know to show up for my kids you know which mm. is the number one thing that i that i always you know um it, it, it's always on the back of my mind. How am I showing up for my kids? You know, so, but I also want to say that I know it's your 112th episode. And I was like, oh, 112 is my favorite R&B group. Oh. Like, okay, cool. Let's throw in some 112 vibes up in here. <laughs> some songs. Right. But so, but thank you so much. I feel um, honored to be here. I feel, um, you know, delighted that you asked me to be part of your community and us and as well as welcome welcoming me into your community as well yeah so i'm likewise i just love everything that you're doing um out on these uh streets and want to make sure we provide you with the platform to to just share more about that and to highlight it uh much deeply so <clears throat> let's start from the beginning so we know that you're out in cali um <clears throat> Remind me what part of Cali you're in. Um, I am from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so that's where I'm at in the Bay. All right, cool, cool. You a Warriors fan? Uh, all day, every day. Listen, Steph Curry right. could do no wrong in my eyes, okay? So stop hating on my boy. Uh, stop hating on Dre. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, we're a big Warriors fan, uh, San Francisco Giants fan, um, definitely a 49ers fan. So it is all Bay love over here. All right, that's what's up. That's what's up. So I know that you're not a traditional educator per se. Um, I know you've done a lot of work, you know, within 
know, housing industry. I know you do some marketing as well. So you're just very well-rounded in what you do. But you do have a soft spot for education. So I do want to give you a chance to just share with our audience, you know, just a little bit about yourself outside of you just being, you know, all about the Bay all day. <laughs> and what ultimately brought you into the education field? Man, I feel that education in general has different chapters in my life, right? Mm. Um, education first started when I, I honestly graduated from a continuation school, you know, not your traditional um, high school graduation, but those were the cards I was dealt with and that's that's what it is. But I embraced it and I actually enjoyed going to my continuation school because I had I saw what educational leadership looked like. Um, and then I started off into community college and then went on getting my bachelor's degree. But I took a lot of gap years. I mean, I switched a lot of colleges because I didn't realize that I was searching for a sense of belonging as a Latina, as a Nicaragüense in these spaces, right? Um, but what started off my college career was when I was working at a financial institution, um, I wanted to apply for a job or I did apply for a job there. And they told me that I didn't qualify because I didn't have a bachelor's degree. And so then I told myself that that was going to be the last time that I apply for a job and I don't get it because I don't have a degree. So I went back to school, got my bachelor's. It took me nine years to get my bachelor's degree. And then I decided to get my master's um, and I got an MBA with an emphasis in marketing. And then to fast forward to my doctoral journey, you know, I actually applied to USC and I got denied and I cried like Kim Kardashian's ugly face, honestly. <laughs> um, but I prayed on it and I said, you know what, God, this is not the right time. You know what you're doing. So let me just keep it moving. And then I saw an opportunity to apply at Mills College in Oakland, uh, which is where I go to now. And, you know, um, I knew I wanted to do something. I knew I, I didn't want to just sit at home, um, even though I have accomplished both degrees. But I knew that I wanted to do something. I just didn't know what that was. I knew that there was a calling. And so um, the pandemic hit. Right. Um, and then I received my approval letter from uh, my sentence letter from Mills College. And honestly, even though getting that letter, I still was like, damn, I don't even know if I want to go. Like, do I want to set myself up again? My, you know, I have two kids now. Um, I'm a first time home buyer. Like I have all, all of these responsibilities. And then I feel the pivotal moment that was clear as day to me. And, it, and it's unfortunate that it had to happen this way was when um, we saw in real time what happened to George Floyd. And then I was just like, nah, I, I need to do something. I don't know what it is. I know I just can't sit here and watch the injustice. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and take this sign from God and I'm just going to accept this journey. And so that's exactly what I did. And I'm so happy that I did because I, I became that much more aware of the injustices in the education system that I've experienced as a first generation Latina. And I didn't realize that I was navigating a space that was not built for me, was not built for you, was not built for anybody that looks like us in this space. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I, I didn't experience during my undergrad because I graduated in Latino studies. So we were mostly learning about, you know, why Latin Americans, um, 
you know, migrate to the United States to live the American dream, right? Um, that was a different perspective. Then I went to get my master's and that was just more business school, marketing, you know, and then you go into education and then it's right there in black and white. And I honestly was just, I, I mean, I was pissed off to be honest with you that it took me this long to understand that I was, that everything that I experienced K through 12 and higher ed, it was not normal, you know? And now there's literature and there's lived experiences and um, similarities within individuals who look like me, who have shared experiences as me that, you know, we're navigating again, a space that was not built for us to succeed. And yet here I am. And so, yeah, that that's my educational journey, um, you know, in a summary, but, you know, it's just, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world because it allows me to also show up for my kids um, in K through 12. I'm able to talk to teachers in real time. I'm able to say, this is not equity for my kids. This is not serving my kids. I don't care if this is the way the school district does it. Um, doesn't mean that it's ethical, you know? And, and I'm being the advocate for my kids that I wish my parents were, but we also have to think about that as Latinos, you know, especially when you come into this new country, you, you enroll your kids in this education system thinking that the teachers and the, and the school district has the best interest at heart for your kids. And yeah. rightfully so, it should be, right? So all those times that I got in trouble in class because I was being too loud or too aggressive or she talks too much, you know, it was those teachers conforming me into white culture, right? It wasn't embracing me as a Latina, right? Um, and so... I just remember my parents just being, you know, just kind of saying, you know, listen to the teacher. Why are you acting up? What's going on? Nobody was really trying to figure out what is, what, you know, what's happening with Christina? What do we have here? You know, like let's embrace the character and the personality that she is versus trying to conform these kids, you know, to a systemic system that in the long run, it's going to be harder for them to navigate. So yeah, there's a lot of work to be, there's a lot of work. Believe me, I feel like I'm always like on <laughs> all the time. Listen, and I think that's just the mind and heart of just being an activist, being revolutionary is just always being on the job, whether it's mentally, whether it's spiritually, whether it's physically, right? But there's a common theme that comes up when we listen to immigration stories. And I don't care what race, what culture, what ethnicity you're coming from. Because this is something that my parents even experienced. And I do believe that it's had a tremendous impact in how I was brought up, right? Mm -hmm. So both my parents are from Ghana, West Africa, and, I, and we talked about this off air. Mm -hmm. And they came to the States around the 60s, early 70s. So the mindset was very much this whole white dominant cultural mindset of we need to assimilate into this culture in order to achieve upward mobility, not just educationally, but also professionally. Correct. So if that meant our children being super proficient in English so that nobody could take advantage of them, that's exactly what it was. Now, we didn't know that it was going to be at the expense of us not being able to speak our native tongue. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know what I mean? which we're going to get into with Spanish, but it was something that I know for a fact that my parents 
adhered to when they first came into the country because that was the idea that was presented to them and to a lot of immigrants who came into America, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you want what's best for your children. And sometimes you do it at the expense of sacrificing certain parts of your identity, right? Mm-hmm. So with your parents coming from Nicaragua, you know, I'm just wondering how did that piece of you shape your overall development and ultimately your identity as an activist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm a daughter of immigrants and I'm loud and proud, you know, and mm-hmm. I remember growing up, I used to say, I'm Nicaragüense, I'm Nicaragüense, I'm Nicaraguan, right? And my mom would tell me, you're not Nicaraguan, you are American. And I used to get mad at her. I'm talking about we would have like arguments, right? Wow. Why would you say that? You know, like you're Nicaraguan and by default I am. But I later understood what she was trying to tell me. And what she was trying to tell me is that as an American, as a U.S. born American, I have privilege and therefore nobody can take those rights away from me. And so then my parents immigrated here from Nicaragua during the early 80s when there was a civil war happening, right? So their sense of belonging in their native country was disrupted. And now they come into this country thinking that, you know, they're going to be welcomed here. And then now their sense of belonging looks very different now. Now they're othered, right? Now they're the immigrant. They don't speak English. Um, And so what my mom was telling me that all of these experiences that both my parents had being told, you can't speak up or we're going to try to deport you. Uh, you don't know how to speak English. You don't have an education or all the things that I have a privilege of. So I feel that because my parents' voice was so suppressed in this system, in the workplace, in, in any space that, you know, gave them that experience, now they have, you know, a child that, I wish someone would tell me that they're going to deport me. Where are you going to deport me to if I'm born here? I wish someone told me I don't speak English. I speak perfectly English, right? I wish someone would tell me that I'm uneducated. I have all these degrees, right? And it's unfortunate that I have to throw that out because some individuals, unfortunately, look at titles and education as validation. And so I'm here to change that narrative to say, I'm an educated Latina, and so you're you're gonna have to come up with some other bullshit on try to like put me down, you know. And so that's that's on that that's really like I really feel that with how my ancestors fought in their country, being colonized from from the Spanish and everything like that. That is honestly their spirit. It's coming through me today and how I show mm-hmm. up in these spaces. And like you said earlier, I'm unapologetic. I'm outspoken about it. And, um, and, but don't get me wrong. I used to not be like that. You know, um, I've always been like that, like outspoken, but I apologize a lot because what I was doing was conforming to people's feelings. Oh, I'm so sorry that I hurt your feelings, but not realizing like, wait, but you hurt my feelings first. And therefore I was just defending myself. And then I started noticing, which is what my education field taught me is, oh, this is white fragility, right? So there's a lot of things that, again, undergrad and master's degree are not necessarily gave me the experience to know about. And now my doctorate degree is allowing me to call things out in real time. And so 
as a Nicaragüense, I am, I am loud. I am proud um, about it. And that allows me, like you said, to identify and to um, have similar stories with other individuals who come from different countries that have similar stories like that of their parents immigrating here or being told that they're not speaking perfect English or being scared of being deported or not having an education, right? But it's because of their hard work and their sacrifices that I was allowed, not allowed, that I have the right to walk through the academia hallways, you know, to walk mm -hmm. across that stage, to sit in a classroom um, because of the sacrifices that my parents made. Right. And I think it's amazing how we go through our K-12 experience, experiencing all these injustices, and then we get to a certain level of consciousness and education where we have the terms to attach to those experiences that that we lived. And we can reflect back and say, wow, they were so wrong at that time. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't realize how oppressed I was. Correct. You know, how conditioned I was, right? And I still have those moments, even as we're speaking uh, with each other. It, mm -hmm. It's just an awakening that, you know, a lot of us go through um, in hindsight uh, when we think back. But I do want to stay on that K to 12 stage of your life for a second, because um, I know that we all have different stories. And I also want to be mindful of the fact that we talk about different historically marginalized communities. None of them are monolithic by any means. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned an example of how within your own family, there was this sense of othering, right? Of differentiating that was taking place. Where it's like, okay, you're right here. We're over here, mm -hmm. but, but, we, but we still love you, right? Mm -hmm. And in some cases we, we have some resentment towards the fact that you have these privileges that we were not afforded when we were your age, you know, there may be some resentment there. So I'm wondering as a K to 12 child, having the heritage that you had, being proud of being Nicaraguan, how do you say it? Help me, help me out. You said it. No, you said it right. Nicaraguan. But you were saying it like, I want to oh, say how you said Nicaraguense. Yeah. Nicaragüense. Nicaragüense, yes. Nicaragüense. <laughs> I do. You did great. There we go. Great. So having that pride, right? What were some of the main uh, challenges and issues that you experienced during your K-12 experience? And maybe there's some that tie to other Latinx students and other Latinx communities that mm -hmm. you feel like are just common across the board? I feel that, well, I know that being Nicaragüense, um, you know, we are sometimes put in a box with all other Latinos, right? And mm -hmm. going back to what I said earlier, yes, we have similarities. Yes, we have shared stories. But my parents' Nicaraguan experience is different than the Mexican-American experience, or even the Chicano experience, you know, Central American and South American experience. And so, um, and I took note of that. I took note that the literature and the history that I was learning was very specific to the Mexican culture. And I became 
kind of resented on that. I was just like, man, but what about Nicaragüenses? Like, I know for a fact, my parents came over here. I, I'm, I'm seeing this. this is a similar story. Why is that not in the history books? You know? Um, and so I felt that I was constantly fighting for that, but nobody was able to provide me an answer. You know, the only answer I got was it is what it is, you know, like this is what we're learning. And, you know, and I don't even think the teachers knew, to be honest with you. And right. that's unfortunate because the teachers also need to provide a multicultural responsive lens on how they provide equity in education, you know? Um, and so I felt like that was my experience, you know, and it wasn't until I got older, I started realizing that, um, that I should speak up more about my heritage and where I come from and, and be, and I've always been proud. Listen, it's one thing Nicaragüenses are, they're very proud of being um, Nicaragüense. But yeah, I mean, I felt that because of that, even as a child, K through 12, the school didn't know how to communicate with parents, you know, um, with Latino parents in general. And so I wish that there was more communication in Spanish, right? More meetings in Spanish, more, you know, um, flyers and written communication in Spanish, because I really think that that would have helped my parents become more involved, or at least knowing what is happening, you know, in the classroom or on campus versus, you know, what I'm telling them, you know, um, and then what, the teacher's narrative is telling my parents is happening in the classroom, you know? And so there definitely should have been more intention with having more parents involved, you know, and my parents worked full time. Both of them had two jobs each, you know? And so I feel that a written communication would definitely come a long way, you know, a phone call, let's have a parent meeting in Spanish, you know? Those were not normal back then. I remember being told I can't even speak Spanish in the classroom. And I was like, why? Like, here is someone that is recently comes from Mexico who speaks Spanish and you're talking to her in English and she has no clue what you're saying, but I'm able to be that gap, be the bridge for her to be a successful student. And you're just forcing her to understand English without giving her the proper equity on how to become a successful student in her classroom. You know, like again, going back and, and like you said, seeing the literature and and, and seeing what those terms are, now I'm like, wow, that's hella messed up. I had a teacher like that, you know? And and it's just, again, it's just so unfortunate that when we were younger, we experienced that. But you're a kid. You have faith in the teacher. You have trust in the teacher. You're assuming that the teacher has the best interest at heart for the kids. And then you grow up. And unfortunately, you have those bad apples that were not really there for equity, you know? Um, and... Now also I understand that the resources, the bandwidth, you know, like I understand that as well, but I saw zero effort on the other side. So at that age, was there ever any tension between you or and your parents? Because you're you're starting to recognize these injustices taking place. Mm -hmm. and you want to advocate for them, but at the same time, you recognize that there's a differential nature where they go about doing things because they see that all right this is the teacher and we're conditioned to respect our teachers because they have the best interest at heart for our child mm 
Mm-hmm. So we're never going to challenge what the teacher is saying. And neither should you, you know, being the child. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing these injustices taking place at that early of an age. So I'm just wondering if there was any tension within your family where you're trying to speak up. But yet your voice is not being um, affirmed at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say it happened more in middle school, sixth yeah, grade, okay. middle school, to be honest with you. Um, and I just remember, you know, my dad, like looking at my report card and he'd be like, why do you have a C? A C is a D. Why do you have a B? A B is a C. Like my dad was always critical on that. Again, we're conditioned, right? To think that grades define us. And to my dad, he was like, why are you doing so bad at school? And I'm like, I'm not doing bad. I understand what's happening. It's just, I don't understand why I'm getting that grade, right? With tests and things like that. I'm like, I understand it. And so I just remember specifically in Spanish class, right? And I took Spanish because I understand Spanish and I know how to read Spanish a little bit, but I needed more practice on writing in Spanish, right? And so I wanted to know, you know, just certain, you know, just like how we're learning English, I just wanted to learn Spanish. And so I just remember my teacher telling me that the way that I speak Spanish was incorrect. And again, going back to the cultural responsiveness, right? I was like, how is it incorrect when I'm speaking Spanish? And of course, the Spanish that they teach you in class is either the, um, you know, Spanish from Spain from Mexico or, or Mexico. Spanish from Spain, for sure. Yeah. Those are the two that they, for somehow, I so, for some reason, I need to learn how to speak Spanish from Spain. Nobody talks like that, at least over here. So I, and I understood the Mexican, you know, the Mexican version of it, the curriculum of that, like, okay, cool. But then to say that the way that I speak Spanish is wrong, that's the part that I don't agree with. So my dad was upset when he was like, why are you getting a B? And I was like, he's like, you should be getting an A. And I was like, yeah, but you also have to understand that I am not, you know, like, I'm not, you know, like Nicaraguan born over there. I wasn't, you know, Spanish is not everything that I was taught. I was taught in English and I learned Spanish through you, but more verbally, more the way that we communicate, obviously I'm using my hands all over the place, you know, like there's certain cultural aspects to it, but reading and writing is something that, you know, my parents didn't have time to really teach me. I taught myself. So, but yes, I've been told that. And so I had arguments with my parents. I had arguments with my teachers um, and it was confusing as a child, right? So then when I would talk in class, it's almost like they would make fun of my accent. They would be like, oh, why is she talking like that? Or why is she saying this? Or why is she saying that? And instead of like the teacher defending me, it was like, oh, well, she speaks a different type of Spanish. That's not the Spanish that we that you need to learn right now. This is not the Spanish that's going to get you, um, you know, into a bilingual, you know, um, job when they say that you need to learn you know, Spanish. And I'm looking at her like, is anybody like, hello, but what? I'm the only Nicaragüense in that space. So who else is going to say, Hey, that's incorrect. Right. I did had Mexican friends, but to them, I'm assuming they're like, that don't affect me. I'm, I speak Spanish, you know, from Mexico. So, you know, and so I felt, I felt that that was kind of wrong, you know? And so then again, Going back to my doctoral studies and now reading it, I was like, wow, that teacher could have handled it a whole nother way, you know, could have taught it a whole nother way instead of putting me down, you know, as a seventh grader on how I speak Spanish. So then I became 
ashamed for talking Spanish, you know? And 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 some of my friends, because I did go to a predominantly white school in the Silicon Valley, you know, I ended up moving from San Francisco to, to San Jose area. And my friends, and I say friends because I thought they were my friends at the time, they would pronounce Nicaragua, which spelled N-I-C, right? N-I-C-A-R-A-G-U-A. They would pronounce it N-I-G. Oh, gosh. Almost like you were saying Nigeria. And then also like if you were saying like the negative term, yeah. uh, you know, and then at first I thought I honestly thought it was a mistake. I was like, no, 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 it's not a C. It's it's not a G. It's a C. Right. At first, I was totally giving him the benefit of the doubt. But then I started catching on like, no, now you're saying that on purpose. And I don't appreciate that. And then they would say, why do you care? You're not even black. And I was like, but that is one, not even how you pronounce the country. And two, why does that matter? Like wrong is wrong and you're saying yeah. it wrong and you're saying it in a negative tone to offend a negative culture. Like why would you, and you know, race and ethnicity. And again, I was fighting the battle by myself, honestly. Um, mm. But it wasn't until I got into high school that my real friends would meet other Nicaraguans and would say, Oh, you're from Nicaragua. Oh dude, you should like meet Christina. Dude, she's hella cool. She's from Nicaragua. And so I appreciated that. By the time I got to high school, right, they knew where Nicaragua was. They knew it was in Central America. They knew I wasn't Mexican. And they knew that when they met someone from the same country, they knew that, you know, that we should meet and introduce, you know, be introduced. And so there was positive outcomes to that. But it took me a long time to get to where, where that space was in ninth grade, for sure. Wow. And just for further context... If you don't mind me asking, mm -hmm. what was the race of your Spanish teacher back then? The one that. Um, yeah. So she was, um, she, I want to say that she was Mexican, but she, I, I, from what I remember, she was like second or third generation. Um, mm -hmm. And not that that's anything bad, but I just remember her saying that, you know, she's not first generation um, Mexican. And, you know, obviously she learned Spanish in school. And so even the curriculum that she was taught as an educator, right. Is outdated. Um, when I was in high school, um, I had a Spanish male teacher, um, and I want to say he was Mexican as well, but he was very different. He acknowledged that I was Nicaraguense. He acknowledged the Bolivians, the Colombians, like you know, my the students that were from different uh, Latin American countries other than Mexico. And then what he did was he embraced us. And he said like, oh, you see how Christina says it like this? It's because in Nicaragua, they pronounce it like this or they use this term. Oh, you see how Melina over here, you know, is Bolivian and she says it like this. That's because in Central America that, you know what I'm saying? So nice. there's education within the context of language versus telling me two grades ago that I was wrong in the way that I'm speaking Spanish. And so Mr. Cutshaw, I don't know, you know, if he's still around, but no, he was definitely like a cool, a very cool Spanish teacher for sure. Wow. And that that's crazy. And I want to still stay on the your first Spanish teacher for a second. Mm -hmm. Third, second or third generation Chicana, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You would think. Like you would think. Even though we're in, we're from different countries, we are still Latina. Mm hmm. So, like, where's the solidarity there? And, and it kind of goes back to a previous point that we were making about just this othering or this uh, kind of like this 
separation or this classism that kind of takes place within the community where it's like, okay, your Spanish is not as good as mine. Kind of like what happens with English. Like, okay, you didn't come from the United Kingdom, so the way you speak English here in America is inferior to how we speak it in the UK. You know, kind of like a similar a similar comparison, you know, where we're now starting to rank whose English is better, whose Spanish is better. Mm-hmm. So as you are, so you're in this Spanish class and you already speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. You already speak Spanish and you have a teacher try to tell you how you're supposed to speak Spanish. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering what makes what makes one one type of Spanish quote unquote better than the other? How mm-hmm. do you get to that determination? Mm-hmm. If you know, tell me because <laughs> <laughs> I honestly don't know. You know, I honestly get corrected all the time when I speak in Spanish because there's certain words that I've never even come across. Like, like honestly, like all the education words when have I said those words in Spanish, right? I'm talking about like the actual like pedagogies, the theories, like, I don't know how to say that in Spanish, right? Um, There's certain things that I don't know how to say in Spanish just because I've never had an opportunity or needed to say that in Spanish, right? And so those are my challenges. And I feel like I'm insecure when I talk in Spanish, you know? Um, I'm definitely insecure when I'm talking sometimes to my parents or my aunts and my uncles. And sometimes I definitely talk Spanglish, first of all. because the way that I see it and the way that I tell them is, you know, you need to learn English and I need to learn Spanish. So that's how we're going to like learn from each other. And then they laugh it off. And it's true. You know, like my aunt, she understands it a little bit more with how I talk to her. Right. But yeah, I honestly don't know who determines, you know, the proper way of speaking Spanish because Spanish has so many dialects. Right. Central America, South America and the Caribbean, um, you know, Mexico. And then even if, and then, like you said, there's Chicanas, right? There's Chicano words, right? That are coming from the Spanish term, Spanish language, but only used in the Chicana, you know, um, community or, or like you said. um, So yeah, it's, it's something that I'm constantly asking myself sometimes. Um, And I felt that that was the question that I would ask about English when I would hear my parents tell me that their supervisor would tell them that they need to learn how to speak proper English, then I would say, what's proper English? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, what is it specifically that you said? Right. And so my dad's telling me, and I, I can understand my dad perfectly fine. It's my dad's accent. That's the problem that, that, that particular supervisor had, you know, it's not my dad's English, right? My dad perfectly understood what he was doing perfectly understood you know, what needed to be said. You just chose to somehow, you know, put my my dad down because of his accent, you right. know? And so that to me was um, frustrating. And there were times where my parents had to write memos, right? Emails. And I would write for my parents and my parents would come back to me and say, you know, my supervisor asked me who wrote the email. And I was like, why does that matter to them? They said, because they they didn't think that I wrote it. And again, go fast forward. Wow, that's a microaggression. microaggression. Like, yeah, you know, like what? You know? And that and and yeah, I mean, it, it that's sad that, you know, 
you have individuals out there that want to be calling out emails and the way that you write and did you write this and I, I don't understand you because of your accent like I my parents dealt with a lot and still came home with grace still came home with putting food on the table still came home you know showing up for us and that type of energy that type of leadership is what makes me the person that I am today you know yes but then on the other side too when your parents are coming home, they're they're showing up for you all, but at the same time, they're internalizing the trauma that they're experiencing from the workplace. Yes. And over time, that accumulates into something, unfortunately, that can become more detrimental to your health. 1, so, and I that, feel like that I took that from my parents. I internalized racial discrimination, right? Yeah. To a certain extent, but I did internalize it because that's how I've been taught, right? I've been taught to, you know, show up, clock in, do your work, clock out, come home. Don't don't right. make any fuss. Don't say anything. Honestly, because that's what my parents had to do, you know? And so, I mean, even you just saying that, there's a saying that says, calladita te miras más bonita. And that means... um translation in English in English says and then it's they're normally the saying is normally told to women to Latina women right to little girls um it it says um when you when you when you're when you're quiet you you look more pretty when you're quiet is what they're telling you right mm -hmm. so basically saying that if you're loud right if you're being disruptive you don't look so pretty no more because you're being a disruptor. You're, you're, you're being noisy over here. You want to be pretty. You have to sit there and you have to be quiet. And you, like we talked about earlier, we're conforming to this dominant culture. We're assimilating to this culture over here. And so I remember my parents telling me that, and I used to argue with them about that. Like I'm pretty anyways. What do you mean? Like, why would you tell me that? But I, you know, again, the underlying message is we don't want any trouble. You shouldn't right. want any trouble. Let's just, you know, let's just, you know, clock in, clock out and let's be done with it. And that is common in the Latino culture, you know, because some, especially like you said, and, and that's, that's actually true for any culture, any race and ethnicity that comes to this country. And this is not their native country. They feel like I can't cause trouble. I, I, I'm a troublemaker. If I speak up and say anything, it's not just you know, only to the Latino culture, but it's, it is something that is a continued um, behavior in our culture as well. All right. And that's the case in most African diaspora cultures yeah. as well. Absolutely. And this is really specific to women because not only are we talking about white dominant culture, but within that, we also have to talk about just some of these uh, toxic patriarchal norms that we reinforce, um, you know, within that paradigm, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and this is something that I witnessed growing up. I'm sure you witnessed it growing up, where it's like if you're a woman, you have to be subservient. Mm -hmm. You have to be docile. Uh, you can't be too loud. Know your place in the pecking order. You know, like you you see all these things. And you don't question it at that time. But then over time, you realize as you're finding your voice, oh, well, hold up. Why I got to be quiet? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like why? <laughs> you know, what's crazy when you say that is that even if you look at the history of Nicaraguense women, 
we're yeah. loud as hell. <laughs> we're hella loud. <laughs> Gender roles over there kind of switched up because, I mean, even if you look at the history of the war, you had women being in the front lines fighting for their country, fighting for literacy rights, fighting for women rights, right? And yeah. we're talking about like guerrilla soldiers, you know what I'm saying? Like in the mountains and stuff like that. So, um, like Nicaraguense women are very strong. And so I feel that, you know, my mom did have, um, you know, women leadership, you know, she did see strong women in her childhood and then she comes here and then it's like, she doesn't feel that much strong anymore. Right. Because it's like, Ooh, I'm othered. Oh, you know, like I can't, I can't say nothing versus in Nicaragua. We're raising hell over there. You know what I'm saying? Like, ain't nothing going to fly over there. And that's the same thing with the generals in the household. I mean, I would go to my aunt's house in Nicaragua and it's like the, my uncle is the one's cooking. He's the one cleaning, you know, yes, she's raising the kids, but it's very like, and I just remember her saying, I'm not a servant. Like, no, no, no. Like this is 50, 50 here. Like I raise kids. I do this. I do that. You do that. You do that. And then that's it. And I feel that that is in me right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't be a housewife. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I just never saw that in my lifetime. You know, I always saw women having different roles and having, you know, um, shared roles in the household, you know? Um, but no, you're right. It's, 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 it's crazy how like, you know, you're right. Like as women, we're just told that we can't, we can't speak up. We can't do this. We can't do that. And I honestly believe that my ancestors are here telling me like, no, <laughs> uh, no. And then this is how, like, they're giving me the tools and the resources, you know, how I need to show up in these spaces, you know? Yeah. Uh, for sure. So I, I want to go ahead and, you know, transition to now where, you where you're at with your life. You know, you're on this doctoral journey. And for those who are listening or seeing you for the first time, they're probably thinking, if I had to take a guest, she don't look like someone that should be within an establishment. Like, you don't align to that, mm -hmm. to that space, whether we're talking academia, corporate, whatever. Like, you just, you're your own soul. So, I'm just wondering, being in that, you know, being in the academia space, pursuing a doctoral degree, what have been some of the ups and downs that you've experienced mm. on this journey thus far? Mm -hmm. Man, I want to say that the down part for sure is that it feels like a lonely journey, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, it feels lonely because, I mean, Latinos only make like less than 1% of doctorals, right? um, PhDs. And so, you know, the higher you get, the less you see us. And so, um, it's lonely for that fact, because I'm really yearning and really trying to find women who look like me, you know, who can give me that mentorship and that guidance. And at the same time, provide that same mentorship and guidance to those that are following me that are, um, you know, going to follow this path. But, it's lonely. You know, I probably would say that I've cried the most during my doctoral journey than any type of situation in my life, because man, it's just very emotional draining because you're really aware of all the injustices that exist 
in all types of systems and all types of spaces. And you obviously want to help and you want to change all that, but then you feel guilty having to like focus on one thing. Like I'm only going to focus on housing. Right. But man, but there's also, there needs to be equity in education too. And there's also needs to be equity in healthcare. And there's like so many things that I'm just so aware that, um, that keeps me up at night sometimes, you know, um, the other down part of it, to be honest with you, part of that loneliness is sometimes you don't get the support that you need, even from within your family and your friends, you know, you would think that because they know everything that you went through, that they know how much, how hard you worked, you know, everything that you've accomplished. Sometimes you're looked at as, well, damn, she thinks she's a shit now because she's getting her doctor degree. Like, wow, why does it even have to be like that? Why did why does uh the crabs in the bucket analogy still have to exist, you know? Um, and so that's the disheartening thing out of out of out of it all is that when you don't have the support that you thought you were going to get pursuing this journey, um, you know, it's just again, it's just it's just, it's very disheartening and it happens in all stages in academia, but I've specifically experienced it right now in my doctoral journey. Um, the ups of it is that I can call shit out in real time. <laughs> like I'm, I'm very aware of like, that's not serving us. That's not cool. That's not equity. Nope. I'm not going to do that. Nope. That's not serving me. Like I'm able and educated and, and not scared really to call shit out in real time, to be honest with you. And so you're right. I don't belong in academia or in the workplaces that are not, um, that don't have anti-racist practices. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, they don't deserve me, you know? And however, what I do say is that if they're willing to do the work, if they're willing to make change, then yes, then I do belong there. And let's go ahead and work together and find a shared understanding of what that looks like small goal, you know, uh, short-term goals, long-term goals. Yes. However, I have yet to find that organization. I have yet to find that academia space. I have yet to find the corporate place. So enter Latinas with masters, which I know we'll talk about, but, um, and the, up, another up to be honest with you is, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm doing this for my kids, you know, I'm doing this so they can, you know, read our, Nicaraguan heritage in literature, which there's a gap of, right? I'm doing it for them. So, you know, my daughter's nine years old and she knows what a master's degree is. If you would tell me at nine years old, if I knew what that was, I'd be lying to you. I had no idea what that is. And so nice. I see my daughter asking all these questions. I had my daughter ask me today, what is Cinco de Mayo? You know, and she she's using like creative thinking skills. She goes, I know I'm half Mexican and I know I'm half Nicaraguan. And I know Cinco de Mayo is not really about the Mexican, you know, um, uh, what does she say? The Mexican war against Spain. I think it's France. And I think it's like another, you know what I'm saying? Like nine, you know? Wow. And I'm and I'm looking that's at her big. like, that's super big because I had no idea. I thought Cinco de Mayo was like, yeah, we celebrate all these things, right? With what they tell us at school. But yeah, so I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it so, you know, um, and, and, and again, if my kids choose not to go to college, that is okay as well. You know, I just want them to at least 
their college is in my house. Let's put it that way. This is mm. the university Rodriguez university over here. Um, <laughs> and I'm not allowing K through 12 to teach my kids or not teach my kids about critical race theory, about Latino critical race theory, about all these things that are sugar-coated. My kids are going to know it in real time, in real life, the real story, the real narrative, you know? And so I feel like that is the up um, in my doctoral journey because it allows me to have these conversations with my kids at the age appropriate that they should be having these conversations, right? Um, prior to that, I probably will be telling them just kind of like how my parents will tell us things, right? Just like Rafla is what we call it, right? Versus here, I'm able to be like, okay, you're nine. Okay, let's 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 talk about how like how a nine year old would understand this, you know. So I'm being an educator in my own home to my own kids, you know. Um, my parents taught me education, but in a different format, and that's fine, and that's also acceptable, you know. But um, again, I'm able to kind of pass that on to my kids, and and that is something that I pinch myself about all the time. Yeah. And I think the beauty in your story is the fact that your children can go and seek out those counter narratives mm -hmm. because you yourself as the parent is the counter narrative. Mm -hmm. You are Absolutely. the counter narrative. You're modeling what that looks like. You share your story openly, authentically and unapologetically. And of course your husband, you know, mm -hmm having his Mexican side, right, is also being a counter to two and what he does. So now you have two parents who are providing you with these stories that you're not going to hear in school. Correct. That in itself is a tremendous asset to have in the home. Mm -hmm. And not everybody has that, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I'm all now, about counter. <laughs> I'm countering oh, everything. All about that. All <laughs> about that. Especially in this in this society we are in, we have to be about that mm -hmm. all the time. Now, before we um, start to wrap things up, I do want to give you a chance to talk about Latinas with Masters, uh, your organization, which is still continuing to grow and evolve as we've already talked about. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with Latinas with Masters, just kind of let us know what inspired you to start it which you started to talk about a little bit early in the conversation and, and what's the ultimate mission of Latinas with masters at this particular stage, because I know that it's going to evolve over time and that purpose may change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I started Latinas with masters because when I was, uh, when I got admitted into my doctoral journey, I was thinking about what did I not have during my graduate school, graduate school, meaning my master's program. And what I didn't have was a sense of belonging. I didn't know what that was at the time or what that looked like, but I knew that I was feeling it. And so I was legit talking to my husband and I was like, you know, I want to create this space, something like Latinas with like masters, because that's who I identify with. And he was like, call it Latinas with masters. And I was like, okay, duh. So I love sharing that story because like people think like, oh, this whole mastermind. No, I like legit, like overnight just started it because I wanted to, I felt it. I knew that I needed to do something. And so when I created the space, I started off as an online community on Instagram and, you know, 
Latinas were reaching out to me. Undergrad Latinas were reaching out to me saying, oh, I see you have your master's degree. I want to know how to get into a master's program. This is what I'm thinking about. What do I need to do? Perfect, girl. I got you. Let me hook you up. Then I have, oh, I'm currently in my master's degree program and I'm so happy I found your page because I'm the only Latina in my class and I feel a sense of belonging. I see myself through this space with other Latinas. Perfect. Love it. And then I have another pillar of, damn, I wish I had this during graduate school, you know, and now I'm getting my doctor degree or I already have my master's degree. And I would love to help continue your mission of uplifting and advancing Latinas and women of color in higher education. Cool. Let's do it. So those are like the three pillars, right? Again, as I was navigating my doctoral journey, I was implementing what I was learning into Latinas with masters, right? I'm not asking for permission. I'm not like Latinas with masters is me. Like that's my company. I'm not asking anybody to do anything. Right. And so what I then realized is that through my trans, you know, um, generational trauma through the lack of sense of belonging, what I created was a counter space. Um, so Latinas with Masters is a counter space of sense of belonging um, for Latinas and women of color, but honestly, anybody, um, you know, to navigate higher education. And so what the overarching mission of Latinas with Masters, again, it started off as, as an online community and, and it is, but it's a brand, right? It's representation of you being a Latina or a Latinx with a master's degree um, first generation. Um, it is also, um, a community where we share and uplift each other, you know, um, you know, helping, you know, individuals outside of academia as well, but what it has also turned into naturally is it is education advocacy, right? It's creating equity in education and in housing, which is my expertise, my background, my experience. I have 15 years of housing experience. And so I am implementing housing education within Latinas with Masters because the consensus was as well, when they would reach out to me would be, I got accepted into my graduate program, but I don't know where I'm going to live, right? Or I really want to live in this area, but I don't know if I got accepted into my graduate program. So we have two industries here that feel that they're very separate in the decision-making process for a graduate student, a student for a college student, but very much have a strong influence on the decision-making process. And so I'm here to create awareness on that. And I'm also here to end the housing insecurity that currently exists with um, college students trying to achieve a college degree. Um, and so that's what Latinas with Masters is about. And like you said early, Kwame, I mean, it is it is growing. It's whatever I want it to be, you know, and yeah. whatever my community tells me it needs to be. And I love it when I get tagged and they tell me, and, and I'm not loving the issue that they're tagging me for, but I love it that they think of me when they're going through something that's injustice, when they're not seeing equity, when they're just seeing, you know, they're also experiencing it and they're like, hold up a second. I'm going to let Latinas with masters know because she needs to know what's going on here. And then guess what? I look at it and I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's BS. Let's create awareness on this. Let's do an IG live. Let's do a podcast. Let's do a post. What do we need to do? Right. And so then I am 
reacting in real time. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm here to dismantle things that are not serving us. You know what I'm saying? No more sweeping the rug, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's what Latinos with Masters is about. I, I'm, I'm honestly like looking forward to how it's continuing to grow um, because I'm actually getting my real estate license. I'm definitely going to incorporate more real estate and housing into Latinas with Masters, you know, and, and, and focus on like, let's get you a degree and become a homeowner. You know what I'm saying? Like, why can't we do both? You know, it's something mm. that I had the privilege of experiencing. And it's a beautiful thing when you're your own landlord and nobody can tell you anything. And so um, that is something that I definitely want to continue to pursue. And um, just watch out. <laughs> watch out for yeah. me because I am not stopping anytime soon. And I think it's so dope that you're able to merge housing education with higher education uh, together because we know that with housing, uh, particularly as it pertains to education, we know that redlining still exists. Okay. We know that yeah. the, we know that um, gentrification happens, particularly when it comes to higher institutions of higher learning and people being driven out their homes mm -hmm. um, and how that impacts property tax, how it impacts mortgage rates and, and everything else. Like I didn't become a homeowner until I was in my thirties. Mm -hmm. I didn't know a whole lot about home ownership until I went through the process of mm -hmm. getting the loan of trying to close on a house. And, and then you finally own that home. And I mean, for those who are landlords, especially during this time of COVID, you understand how tough it is. Uh, to to kind of maintain the condition of your home, particularly as it, as it pertains to repairs, even collecting rent, because mm -hmm. we know that there's moratoriums all across the board in different cities throughout our country. Uh, there's a whole lot to learn. Mm -hmm. and, and this is and I'm someone that has a master's degree. I was already teaching for a good number of years and then I decided to become a homeowner because I realized, wow, there is power to ownership, even though it's there is more work, you know, being a landlord and having to upkeep the property. I still would rather have that than to still be renting and paying someone else's mortgage. Absolutely. You, you feel what I'm saying? Generational so, wealth too, you know. Generational, exactly. Whew, and that's the part that we have to understand, you know, and that transcends any community. Ownership's the key. Mm-hmm. Oh, ownership is king for sure. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very big on that. You know, I do housing education workshops to college students for those that are renting, you know, at least know, you know, what the basics are on how to secure off-campus housing, you know, know what's legal and what's unethical. Um, and, and then once you're ready to become a homeowner, then, you know, there's education for that as well. So that is how I'm an educator. I'm not an educator necessarily like in academia walls within a higher institution, but there's education happening all around us outside, even back in our native countries, right? In our ancestors, education looked very different then, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, so I, you know, I appreciate that I'm able to share a little bit of the housing information because, um, that is something that I'm very passionate about, you know, and, um, I, I'm looking forward to, to opening up, uh, you know, widening up that, that chapter with Latinas with masters. Yeah. And then just one last point on this, because, you know, we want to make sure that 
we say some that thunder probably for a future conversation because housing is so important. When you look at the issue with student loan debt, imagine if you had a home and you had tenants within that home paying the mortgage for you, mm-hmm. which then would give you the space to save up money, not just potentially for another property that you want to invest in, but to pay off the, these debt, these debts that you have. You know, like just something as simple as that is enough of a reason to, to even consider going that route. And I understand there's risk involved. And yes, it is a huge responsibility. Trust me. Mm-hmm. I had to pay over $20,000 to repair a roof last year. Ooh, yeah. Thank goodness easy. I was able to put that in my taxes because I got some of that back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do write-offs, but it's real. It is real. Yeah, homeownership real. is real. It gets <laughs> trust. It gets really real <laughs> when you become a homeowner, for sure. Oh my goodness! But, you know, to kind of end on that, I would rather collect the debt, student loan debt, mortgage debt, whatever debt. You know what I'm saying? I would rather yep. collect that debt so my kids can be debt free. So when they go to college, this house is paid for. Or when they finish college, right? This house would be paid for. They can take out equity. You know, we're gonna. Pay, pay for their student loans. I would love for them to go to community college first, to be honest with you, unless they're going on a full scholarship, right? That's a whole nother conversation. But oh. yeah, I have, you know, a pathway for them that is equitable for them for whatever path that they want. I just have to be prepared to see what that looks like when they get older, you know? Um, and me and my husband are pre- preparing for that, just like you're preparing it with your wife as well for your kids, you know? And it starts with us and it's that generational wealth and that knowledge on, the privileges that we now have to provide for our kids, you know? Yes, absolutely. Ooh, listen, uh, Christine, this has been a dope conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, we can go on and on uh, with, with these issues, but we do need to wrap it up. So I have my lightning round. Got a few Good. quick hitter questions that will close us out. Uh, first question that I always like to ask is, what are you doing for self-care? How do you take care of yourself these days? Self-care, you know, I'm trying to meditate more. Mm. I feel like meditation is something that I, I haven't been exposed to growing up and, and, and meditation provides healing. And so that is, that is my self-care. All right. And I know that you're in the middle of your doctoral journey. So a lot of the books you're reading, you have to read just for research purposes. But if there's a book that you're reading, that's more so for leisure, what are you reading currently? Right now, I am reading um, for brown girls um, with, I forgot the exact term, for brown girls with sharp edges and tender hearts. That's what it's called. And the author is um, Nicaragüense. And so this is the first Nicaraguan, Nicaragüense woman book that I was able to read um, who's brown like me, who looks like me, who has shared experiences as me. Um, So I would definitely recommend that book. And then if you can invite three influential figures that are alive to dinner, who would they be? Um, definitely Selena. That is my homegirl right there. Just love her to pieces. Um, definitely looked up to her. Um, Tupac. Like, how can I not put Tupac in there? Um, and, you know, most recent one, to be honest with you, would be Viola Davis. I am a fan girl of Miss Viola Davis. And I had an opportunity to 
um, go through a conference where I, where I, you know, where she was doing a keynote speaking. And then I just saw the Netflix special with her and Oprah. And she has a lot of gems and wisdom that she's dropping on us. So don't fall asleep on Ms. Viola Davis. I just ordered her book. So adding that to my, you know, leisure reading as well. And shout out to Viola Davis. Um, my wife was a huge How to Get Away with Murder fan when mm -hmm. that was out. Mm -hmm. um, and we just love everything that she's in. Everything. Everything. Um, but they're giving a hard time about her um, performance as Michelle Obama because she does play That's Michelle it. Obama in this uh, this new show. I forget the name. Uh, First Lady. A hard time. First Lady. And people give her a hard time about him. Like, y'all need to leave her alone. Come on. Yeah, they but, were saying because of the way that she's, um, the way that she, you know, does her lips when she's talking. Who cares? Why do you care so much? God, like, it's just ridiculous. The things that we look at, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah, you know, one she, thing is she, she is. Yeah, but one thing she did mention was that she is just as accomplished as Meryl Streep. And oh, no shade on Meryl Streep. You would think she would have like at least 10 Grammys by now. Not 10 yeah. Grammys, 10 Oscars by now. But you know, it's all good. We know how Hollywood is. You know, yeah. is, you know. Yeah. And, and what I love about Viola <laughs> is that she's speaking up about it. You know, what does she do? Oh, she's yeah. Her own production company. She's writing her own book. She, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the type of leadership that we need to see. Let's not conform to these spaces that we're trying to fit in so much. Let's just create our own, you know what I'm saying? And continue to be the people that need to see us out there, you know? So yes, uh, shout out to Viola Davis. Definitely would love to meet her one day. She's on my bucket list for sure. Uh, for sure. Um, uh, thank you again, Christina, for coming on. And before um, you sign off, please let people know how they can connect with you on social media and to help support the work that you're doing in these communities. Thank you. So you can follow Latinas with Masters on all social media platforms that the handles are Latina, uh, Latinas with Masters. So both plural. Um, and then you can visit my website at latinaswithmasters.com. And you can also support and subscribe to the uh, Latinas with Masters podcast. Uh, season two, I'm actually focused um, on the men and the Latinx men who have reached out to me and say, Hey, men have master's degrees too. And I would love to share my stories. So shout out to them. I'm dedicating season two to them. So there's a whole bunch of like just badass individuals that again, the counter narratives, right. Of, of being successful in academia. And so, you know, thank you again for the opportunity to be part of your community and welcoming me into your community. You are more than welcome to my community as well, as well as my podcast. You don't have to be a Latina or a Latino or a male or anything to identify and be part of the podcast. Um, so definitely would love to, you know, have you as a guest as well. So the Latinx community can also learn about Kwame and everything that you're doing as, you know, as a disruptor in this space as well. So uh, I appreciate you. I appreciate you, but we'll, we'll have to pick this conversation up again another time uh, for sure, because there's so much more to uh, unwrap and unpack. So I appreciate you, Christina. Thank you so much. We'll do anytime, you know, I'd be right. staying ready. So. <laughs> All right. So you have a good rest of the day. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of our Dane Tough Educators Live. 
And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.